Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today, we're speaking with Dmitry Dushevsky, an Austin-based photographer who, in a strange twist of fate, received a cancer diagnosis a year into working on a project about a friend's cancer journey. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So for our listeners, can you introduce who you are and what you do? My name is Dmitry Stashevsky. I'm a photographer based here in Austin, Texas. I work in the documentary space very broadly, so I think that ranges from everything from photojournalism to more art-driven bodies of work. And I would say that the distinction that I'm making there is just that with my photojournalistic work, I'm trying to just capture reality and show what's happening, whereas with my artistically driven projects, I am... I have some. I have a little bit more to say as far as uh, I do. A, I do a little bit more to insert my own artistic voice into the work, which is where this specific body of work is coming from. And with your photojournalism, you've even done some freelancing for the Statesman, right? Yeah, I was actually thinking about it as I drove up here. The very first assignment that I got when I moved to Austin was for the Statesman. It was just like. A, press conference at the Capitol. Uh, and I, it was a very exciting moment for me because I didn't, I didn't go to a journalism school or I'm completely self-taught as a photographer. So the freelance world was very new to me at the time. So it was like, a, you know, I went and bought the paper the next day because I was so excited to like see one of my photos in the paper. And when did you move to Austin? I moved here in 2018. And before then, I, I really bounced around quite a bit. So today we're talking about this project you have coming up called Close to the Bayou that is about uh, a good friend of yours, Thomas Mann, who you call Tom, and your journey with him in documenting his cancer treatment journey. That's what the whole work surrounds. But of course, there's the strange twist of fate that you also received a cancer diagnosis a year into working on this project. So just starting from the beginning... Tell me about Tom and your relationship with him. Yeah, so Tom has been a close family friend for my entire life. He, uh, his friendship with my father and my mom uh, goes back to before I was born. When I was growing up, he was just a not everyday presence, but a constant presence in my life just because he would come to San Francisco where I grew up and stay with my family once, sometimes twice a year. He was just a regular and very different presence in my life. My father is a German-trained master goldsmith. Uh, his work is very, I would say, geometric, very clean, crisp. And I would say that his personality kind of is reflective of that style of jewelry that he makes. Tom is the opposite. He's from New Orleans. He grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, 
and very much embodies an artist living in New Orleans and would kind of bring this, you know, beautifully chaotic kind of bayou energy to our San Francisco home. So, and, and the jewelry that he makes is very like playful and whimsical, super colorful. So it was just very different. His energy was very different than the energy that I was used to. And I guess I should back up, explain that both he and my father work in this, they're, they're part of a community of craft jewelers, uh, which is, you know, the craft jewelry movement in the U.S. is kind of like, it, it is a very niche part of the art craft world. But for me, that's that was like my community growing up. I was all the adults in my life or many of them were part of that community. Um, and so as I grew up, I just really gravitated towards jewelry making. I wanted to become a jeweler. I was making jewelry all the time and ended up going to New Orleans while I was in high school. I was 16 years old to apprentice with Tom for a couple weeks one summer shortly after. It was a couple years after Katrina, but I just remember uh, hearing, hearing about Katrina constantly. So it was just this very formative experience where I was living in Tom's house. I was clocking in every day, going to work with him. And in many ways, he just completely treated me like an adult. Like he would in New Orleans, like he, he like took me to the bar a few times. Not that I was drinking anything, but like I was just part of the gang basically for those couple weeks, which as a 16 year old was just a, a big deal. Like I felt like an adult. I was very proud of myself. I remember I worked for a hundred hours in those two weeks because I was clocking in and stuff. So I remember feeling like super excited and accomplished. I'm curious about what you said about it being like a niche craft art community and what it was like growing up in that space. Cause I feel like you don't run across too many, you know, like professional jewelers these days and people totally. who like that's their, their whole thing. So what was that like for you? And especially maybe compared to your peers at school that were involved yeah. in, you know, more quote unquote, typical teen kid hobbies. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to describe because I think when I say, oh, my my dad's a jeweler, people have this idea of like, I, I grew up in San Francisco, so I think it's easy to think like of Tiffany or like, I don't know, Bulgari, like these fancy stores that you'll see. But, you know, my dad goes to this small studio in a, like growing up, he would go six days a week to this little studio that community of jewelers, they would go to these craft shows all over the country throughout the year. Some people were, you know, doing five or more of those shows. My dad would do like three or something like that. And one of the shows was always in San Francisco. And so every year I would always be so excited to be able to go see all these jewelers who are creating work. Um, and it was very formative experience, like walking through those aisles and getting to see like the new body of work that this person or this that that person had created through the year and as a kid it was just it's like I don't know like you're seeing these you know shiny shiny gold and bright gemstones and Tom uses different things like found wood and plexiglass and so I think there was just this like tactile experience that I really gravitated to and for me I was just like very enamored with the process of jewelry making because it's you're like using flames to solder gold and silver together and um, you have to learn to f saw and file and all these like very technical 
things that just as a kid I was super interested in. Um, so very early, like very early on, I think I was 12 or 13, I basically told my dad one summer, like, you know, I want to be a jeweler, so you have to start teaching me. And so I, he, to his credit, was like, all right, like, <laughs> you're going to start. He started teaching me like the, he started giving me the exercises that he was given as a adult in trade school in Germany. And so that was kind of my introduction. It, that was my introduction to jewelry making. What made you ultimately shift from wanting to be a jeweler to photojournalism and just photography in general? Um, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of a long-winded answer, but towards the end of my high school, I, I, I grew up playing music my entire life, so, but I never really wanted to be a professional musician. I could just, I never was able to practice enough to see myself as a professional musician. Um, and so towards the end of my high school, I took a, an audio engineering class and just totally fell in love with it. And so as I was applying to colleges, uh, my senior year of high school, I was deciding if I was going to go to school for jewelry making or for audio engineering. And I ended up uh, choosing to go to Loyola University in New Orleans uh, for, for music industry studies, but with a focus on audio engineering. And so that was, again, like this moment where I was definitely excited about and leaning into the opportunity to be close to Tom and have him be a part of my college experience. I would frequently go over to his house, just cook meals together. I would work for him from time to time, just, you know, at a gallery opening or something like that. Um, and then in my junior year of college, I ended up going to uh, I ended up going to Mongolia for a study abroad semester to do this documentary project about nomadic herders and their musical tradition. Just really connected with that process of recording music in this very different environment. I was, you know, recording bands in a studio, which I was very much in love with. But towards the end of college, I just kind of got burnt out. I felt like I was kind of doing the same thing over and over again, which, you know, I don't think that's the same experience for everyone, but that just felt like my experience and was just a little bit jaded by the industry in general because I had had some internships at big studios where, you know, I'm like cleaning toilets and just like I wasn't being paid at all. And it was just like I didn't really see a future for myself. And then at the same time, you know, I had had this these experiences in Mongolia where I was just my own boss. I was out in the middle of nowhere recording these herders, living with herders, having these like wonderful experiences and then taking a lot of pictures at the same time. So I just very much leaned into that. I ended up going back to Mongolia shortly after I graduated uh, on a Fulbright MTVU fellowship um, and continued that documentary project. And again, just really leaned into the image making process. And that's when I was kind of hooked on photography. So now tell me about how Tom approached you in asking for your help in documenting his cancer treatment. Yeah, so in in the summer of 2020, that's when I found out that Tom had been diagnosed with, uh, I believe it was stage three prostate cancer, which is, you know, not the worst case scenario, but definitely a very scary diagnosis. And I, I was pretty impacted by that news. And simultaneously, as he was 
telling me this, he kind of asked me for, he asked me for some support as he moved into this short-term rental in Houston, which wasn't going to be until January of 2021. So in his mind, I talked to him about this recently. I was, I was asking him, you know, like, why, why do you ask me of anyone? You know, not that I was just asking him, why did you ask me? And for him, it was very much like he, he and I consider each other family, you know, so it was kind of just him asking a family member, just asking family for help. And at the same time, he knew that he wanted to be creating work throughout the entire treatment process. He's used to working with an assistant and he knows that I can make jewelry. I can still saw and file and solder. And so he was asking me to help me. Uh, he was asking me to help him through that process, help him make work during the treatment experience. So he did treatment in Houston at MD Anderson, and it was during COVID. So that impacted how you were able to go about photographing this project. Yeah. So it was, it was like the height of COVID, you know, 2021 or early 2021, right before anyone got vaccinated. He's going through this intense treatment and they're, you know, they're telling him basically you can't interact with anyone um, for risk of getting COVID. Um, and, and I wasn't even allowed into the hospital to, to support him or definitely not to take photos. Um, and I knew that that was going to be the case from the beginning. So it became this challenge of considering, you know, what am I here to document and what do I, what do I actually want to share? And my initial thought was like, I'm going to be documenting Tom creating work through his treatment experience, but very early on it changed into something very different. It felt like more of this documentation of an emotional space as opposed to this more literal, like photojournalistic documentation of, you know, someone making work, someone going through treatment. It was more about capturing this feeling, capturing the, capturing what I was feeling, capturing what he was feeling and capturing kind of the energy of the space that we were sharing together. And one of the big spaces was a park that was right next to MD Anderson that had Spanish moss on the trees. And I know since we spoke about it before that that really inspired the story that you're telling with your photos and the name of Close to the Bayou. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the there right across the street from the space where Tom was staying, there was this beautiful Spanish moss, like you would look right out the window and it was right there. And so I just at first was very gravitated to it in this visual sense. Like it's just, I've always loved the, you know, physical texture and then just spending so much time there. It kind of started to mark the passage of time for me. Like the light was changing from, you know, this like January light to this spring light. So during the sunrise and sunset, I was always, you know, I was always making sure that I was either out there or somewhere where the light was really beautiful. So it started again, marking the passage of time for me, but then also marking this emotional space and feeling that I've had throughout my whole life. It, it, for me, it, it came to kind of symbolize my relationship with Tom to symbolize the bayou because again, he's from New Orleans, like that same Spanish moss. Um, is right across the street from Loyola, 
Loyola University uh, at Audubon Park where I went to school. So it was just like, to me, it's this very nostalgic organism, plant, whatever you want to say. And I think for a lot of people and for me as well, it, it symbolizes something Southern. What, you know, what that is specifically is, I think, up to the individual to decide. And so I started playing with this metaphor of what does it mean to be close to the bayou? And at the same time, during this experience, Tom throughout COVID had grown his hair out super long, which is not something he had ever done throughout my throughout my life, I think. I was seeing these like visual parallels between Tom and the moss and his hair. And so for me, it was kind of connecting those two things and thinking about the this strength, building a metaphor to think about what what it means to be close to the bayou and in a way what this closeness with Tom meant for me personally. What was it like for you to see someone that you're so close with have to go through cancer treatment? So Tom's treatment experience, he was getting this proton beam therapy. Like they were literally shooting his cancer with a laser, which was very intense in a certain way, but it wasn't chemotherapy. So he wasn't having these like totally debilitating symptoms. But at the same time, I could tell that this person who I really cared about was being deeply impacted by the experience. And I think more than anything, I don't want to speak for him, but I think the isolation was the most challenging part for him. Like he was literally the only people he would interact with most of the time would be the people at the hospital and or the people in the waiting room, for example. He's someone who's used to being surrounded by by colleagues, by friends, like inviting people over for dinner. I think he was experiencing the compounding effects of isolation because of COVID. And then he was in this super isolated state just by himself for three months. So I was definitely, I spent more time with him than anyone else during that period of time. And I was only there on the weekends. Um, so I think more than anything, it was just seeing a close friend experience that. But I think it was it was a really bonding time for us because every time I would come, it would be that moment where he gets to kind of relax and just be with someone he cares about. So it was a very uplifting experience for me. And we both really leaned into what that time meant for us. We would have these like late night conversations um, about just the, I, I don't know, I think because of COVID, we were we were both thinking a lot about like death and kind of what's next and why are we making art you know why just these big existential questions and so we would be talking about that until like you know one two in the morning sometimes drinking tequila like whatever it was um and it was a really it ended up being this like surprisingly not that there has to be like a silver lining to a challenging experience like that but i think in many ways we were able to bring something really positive out of his treatment that does sound really special. Totally. And I imagine that y'all's bond deepened even more when almost a year to the day that you started this project with Tom, you received your own cancer diagnosis. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So exactly as you stated, that's exactly what happened a year to the day later. I found out that I had uh, testicular cancer, which it was just one of those moments that I think you have to pay attention you know it just of course there could oh it's just coincidence you know that kind of thing but to me it was almost like the universe kind of slapping me in the face and just it felt like I in many ways I was supposed to help Tom through his experience to prepare 
myself for the own my own experience of can- what cancer treatment was going to be for me and and you know as i would find out everyone's experience with cancer is completely different just because the treatment can be so ranging it's like when people say cancer it's like that means you know hundreds of different things and so in many ways i had to relearn these lessons that i had thought i had learned from helping Tom, supporting Tom through his experience. How did y'all's relationship shift and even the project shift once you went from being kind of on the outside documenting to, in a way, now kind of there with him? Like you said, the treatment's different, journey's different for every person, and it was different types of cancer, but how did it shift in that now you were a lot closer to the subject matter, really? Um, I mean, I think it, it just it, it's interesting when you're playing with metaphor in a project or it, it, when you're using metaphor in this body of work and then all of a sudden I'm having to apply that metaphor to myself. For me, being close to the bayou is a metaphor for being close with life, close with death, close with art making, close with love. And so I think when all of a sudden I had made this body of work where I was truly examining these heavy themes of life and death and then all of a sudden I'm having to think about my own closeness with death it was very it was a big shift that I had to make mentally to thinking of death in this more abstract sense applied to uh, a close friend of mine but then thinking about my own life and luckily I had a very positive prognosis but I think you know I was 29 when I was diagnosed and I had never really had to think of my own mortality so directly and so that was a more than I think that was probably the most impactful shift for me in the experience was just kind of just just having to question my own mortality for the first time in my life. And another subject that you said that you kind of explored and thought about was art making especially in relation to death so what kind of conclusions did you come to with that and why making art is so important? While I was with Tom, helping him through his experience, I was at this moment in my own journey where I was really thinking about what it means to be an artist and if I considered myself an artist. And Tom is so unapologetic about being an artist. When you ask him, what's your job? He'll say, I'm an artist. You know, like before before he says, I'm a jeweler, I'm a sculptor, I'm a painter, he's an artist. And so I think for me, I was just being in the presence of some, someone like that and talking to him about these things, it started to shift my own perspective and my own mindset so that I was thinking about, I was giving myself permission to consider myself an artist um, just be, by being in this present, by being in his presence. Um, so there's one day where just in one of these late night conversations, this is what he said to me. Artists reflect the times that we live in. That's our job. We are here to interpret our reality for people who do not have a way to do that themselves. Our job is to deliver perspective. And so I think when he said that, it just really shifted how I was thinking about art making. And I think it's very easy to think of art creating work in this like ethereal kind of whimsical way, like inspiration strikes and then I have to put pen to paper or I have to go take photos or whatever your medium is. But 
the way that he had he had shared that was so much more reflective of my experience with artists because I again I grew up with my father and all these working artists going into their studios every single day and so to think like oh we actually have this skill that not everyone has not everyone is able to interpret reality in this way and so that's what art can do for other people so if I am able to do that it's important that I go to work and do this thing you know and of course there is you know there are challenges and blocks and whatever but I think thinking about art in this in that way was more it felt more authentic and it felt more of a reflection of my own experience seeing these other people and the way that they created work as this more pragmatic thing. Now, both you and Tom are cancer-free, which yes. is wonderful. Yeah. What is y'all's relationship like now, and what does he think of the final product? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, just the, the experience of going through uh, cancer treatment back-to-back definitely became this like bonding experience for us uh you know he wasn't able to come to austin and you know i didn't expect him to do that but um yeah i think in many ways we're connected in a new way um and certainly closer than ever he's someone that i feel very close with and who will remain super important part of my life for you know forever now, what's next with Close to the Bayou? What does it look like in terms of publication for the photo book and how can people support it? Yeah, so right now I'm running the pre-sale for the book, uh, printing a project like this. Um, it just takes a lot of upfront investment and uh, I put a lot of money into it. I look forward to you know spending more of my own money on this project, but I really do need some help making it all happen. So my goal is to pre-sell around 250 copies. Uh, more than that would obviously be amazing. But um, yeah, I think that for anyone who, I don't know, anyone who's asking these questions about what it means to be an artist and what it means to create work for themselves, this would be an impactful project. Anyone who's been close to someone who's gone through cancer treatment or some sort of isolating sickness, um, this would be an impactful book for them to read. One of the major things I was hoping to do with this project was allow people to feel more comfortable with speaking about death and mortality uh, in a way. And so if that's something that you're interested, which I, if that's something that you're interested in, which I know a lot of people are, I think this would be a project that you'd really gravitate towards. As we come to the end of the interview here, there's a question I ask everyone who comes on as a tie-in to the name, and that is, for you, what does it mean to be a Texan? When I moved to Austin, what I noticed was that, especially in the service industry, there are so many people who were ostracized in their own communities, who were, you know, kicked out of their house for being gay or just felt like an outcast in their small town all over Texas, and so they all moved to Austin so that they could be themselves and express themselves in their truest form. And so I think that says a lot about Texas, and I think that also says a lot about Austin. And I think for me, the best parts about being Texan are perseverance and um, just kind of a, a push forward despite the barriers that are in front of us. And so 
maybe some of that comes across in this book. You know, I, I haven't personally experienced that type of, you know, horrendous persecution. But yeah, I think for me, that's what that's what I guess what I love most about Texas or about the Texans that I know who have who inspire me like I have friends who that was their experience. And so, you know, just to live among people who are expressing themselves so freely inspires me to do the same. Where can people find you online and where can they pre-order Close to the Bayou? This is the second book project that I've created. And so to kind of organize my book projects in one place, I created a new brand called Cedar Fever, which Austinites will be very familiar with, as will everyone in Central Texas. Um, So the website is cedarfever.co. You can pre-order the book. I'm doing uh, kind of DIY crowdfunding campaign. So there are a few different, of course, you can just order the book. You can order a book in a print. And then there are a few higher tiers. If you're just like super connected with this project, uh, you can fund it on a really meaningful level. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.